we are we are in the book of Judges tonight, by the way. And it's a really beautiful chapter. We're in Judges 9. If you go back for a moment, we want to make sure we have a bit of context. The uh, We're going to, we'll start in, in verse 22 of the previous chapter for the sake of clarity. And I'll say again, always, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Compare it to scripture and make sure that you get your answers from this book. Yeah, see what, if anyone wants a Bible, Marcia will gladly get you. <laughs> That's really sweet. I want you to know, we're going to remember these days. There will, be, there will be days we'll look back and it'll be so opposite of this. And we'll look and go, do you remember these days? So, Gideon had just seen a tremendous battle, if you remember. 135, 140,000 people from Midian defeated by 300 men and Gideon, well, the Lord and the men who would follow and at the end of that, we read in verse 22, and again, this is for context, Judges 8, verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, don't miss that, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, that's a really great moment, and you wish that it ended there. But then Gideon said to them, and whatever then is, I'd like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And of course, we saw that these were crescent moon earrings from the Ishmaelites that were dedicated to the, God, to the moon god, Allah. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now, the weight of the gold... Uh, earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were the, on the kings of Midian and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. Now, simple, 1,700 shekels is roughly 19.28 kilograms. Uh, so if you do that at gold, which is really, uh, in essence, I think it's 25, roughly 25 pounds a gram, and you multiply that then by well, 19,280 grams. What you have in essence is that getting collected the gold of about 480,000 pounds. And what he does with it is he makes a golden ephod. An ephod is kind of a robe or if you will, it's like an apron. But in essence, he makes a monument. I don't know how a golden apron testifies of a great victory uh, in battle. Uh, you would think maybe a golden like, you know, torch and you know, in a sword or something, because that was kind of the way we saw it play out. Nonetheless, Gideon now has this this particular item, and he turns it, we read then, into uh, Gideon, verse 27, made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all the children, I'm sorry, all of Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. It didn't just become a snare to the people of Israel, it became a snare to Gideon. And, I, and please understand, as we, as we kind of jump into this, we kind of have to build on this concept, and that is that Gideon has this terrible habit of receding like many of us would. I want to remind you, when Gideon was called, Gideon lived in this town, and in this town was a house where he lived with his father. And as he lived in, that, in this house, God told him that he needed to tear down the idol that was outside, the, the pillar, if you remember. The pillar is going to kind of play into this. 
uh, the pillar and the altar that was outside and make an altar to him and sacrifice the cow that was to be sacrificed to this false god, to, to God instead. Now, the reason I say that is it, when the people show up the next day and the altar is destroyed and the pillar is down, the people of the town show up and they're quite angry, which tells me that it wasn't like everyone had a pillar in their backyard. It wasn't like everyone had an altar. It was the kind of community altar, idol, idol altar. And, and, and what's interesting is now, look at this. After this great victory, victory, what we see is kind of getting goes back to it. He goes back to this place now of sort of, it's not a pillar. It's not an altar to, a, uh, to an idol per se. But what it is, is it's a monument of something God had done in his life that now people have just basically now taken that, made that the new thing to worship. And where is it? It's at Gideon's house again. And it just seems like the town almost has gone back to what it was before. As a matter of fact, we're going to see after Gideon dies, it gets even worse. And, and, and I, I think there's a part of us that kind of has to do some inventory. What kind of person were we before the Lord got a hold of us? Now, I'm not even asking before you called yourself a Christian. I think there's a really big difference between when you think you call yourself a Christian and when the Lord really got a hold of you. When the Lord really got a hold of you, before that point, what kind of person were you? How did you feel about yourself? How did you feel about others? How did you look at society? What things do you think you contributed and what things did you think you took from the society around you? What things did you seek to imitate and was there anything you sought to impact? And then I look at that and then I ask, well now, if I were to keep looking back at what God had done and not be current in my walk with the Lord, do I have a tendency to go back to those qualities? Because it's familiar. Do I have a tendency maybe to look and, and sort of drift back in the stream of where I'd come from? That would really, really be a sad thing. And unfortunately, we live in a world that is, we know, sort of benchmarked for destruction. And the tide is not a good one. And I look at this and I think we are always going to be fighting the tide here. We are always going to be traversing opposite the current of this world. But with Gideon, you look at this and you realize that this guy that went from coward to courageous, from from sort of scaredy cat to soldier, now he's just gone to this place now where he's just sort of sidetracked and he's he's gone back to receding to where he was before. We don't read after this point, by the way, any other great victory he does. We kind of know at this point Everything that's going to happen really kind of has a uh-oh feel to it. Look at Then Yerubal, and by the way, God is going to transition from the name Gideon to the name Yerubal. And remember, that was the name that means let Baal or the false god plead because he had destroyed that altar. In the next chapter, and that's of course where we're going, we're not going to see the name Gideon anymore. I mean, once Gideon dies, and, we, and once this chapter is done, the name Gideon is, remo- is done. And from that point on, God's calling him by this name, Yerubbaal, and which is interesting because, again, I remind you, the idea of that was his dad rescues him because the people want to kill him after he took down the, the pillar and the altar. And they're like, well, look, at well, if this guy, if this guy's a real God, well, why don't you let him handle it? Why are you trying to kill my son over this, says Gideon's dad. And so they call him then, let Baal plead. So it's interesting that God's going to use that name next chapter because the whole idea of it is, well, if this thing were for real, we'll let him do all of the pleading instead. Well, unfortunately, that's not what we're going to see. So, Yerubal, the son of Yoash, went and dwelt in his own house. Verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring. 
for he had many wives. And of course, there's nothing in Scripture that says that that's a wise move, or for that matter, that it's condoned. And then it says, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now, now, I don't, you know, do, you, do we even know the difference between a uh, a concubine and a wife when a guy's got a bunch of them? I mean, we kind of read these terms and we just kind of, I don't know, my mind maybe goes a little bit to some like China where something like that can still be more recent and they still call them concubines. I mean, really, in essence, it's somebody basically that you're kind of just having sex with that you have no marital obligations whatsoever. That means you're not required to to house them. You're not required to uh, to provide for them. There's no commitment to that relationship if there's a relationship at all. With a wife, I mean, when you die, you're still required to provide for them. I mean, you have to house them. You have to feed them. I mean, there's, I mean, I don't say have to, you know, I mean, I, I get to with my wife and I'm very thankful for that. But I have one and one's enough for me. And in scripture it tells us, by the way, when it comes to a person who seeks to be mature in Christ, in, which God would call an elder, they have to be the husband of one wife. As a matter of fact, scripture makes it even more clear. It actually says literally a one woman man. I like that. And God holds the marriage bed very sacred. He says it's something to be undefiled. Now, I won't belabor the point, but it is an important one to note that all of these things are symptomatic of a person whose heart no longer really is if, if ever really encased in the Lord here. And the guy's looking for, for satisfaction completely outside of the hands of the Lord here. So, so the, what we have now is we have the situation where the guy went and, he, and he, he's kind of now found this other thing to worship, if you will, this golden apron. And then he's got all of these wives. He's got all of these children, 70 sons with it. And then he's got a gal on the side. Now, I mean, I, when you start thinking 70 you know, sons, and we don't read how many wives, and still a gal on the side. But this particular gal on the side is going to be the point of our next chapter, or more so the son. But then we get the, guy, the idea that he names this son. We don't have, by the way, the names of any of the 70 sons. Uh, what we do have is the name of the one son, if you will, that's sort of illegitimate. He cannot make claim to his father's property, to his father's anything. He cannot uh, get his father's inheritance. He, cannot, and he couldn't go to a court of law and demand his father to take care of him in any way at all because his mother was a concubine. It'd be the same thing as, this, if you will, the son of a prostitute. And with that, he names him Abimelech. And Ab, like Abba, means father or daddy. Melech means king. So his name literally means my dad is the king. Now, that should give you a little bit of a concern because the people said, remember, rule over us. And Gideon said, no. But then ultimately, he winds up naming his son, my dad's the king. Now, that should be concerning. Now, Gideon, the son of Yoash, died at a good old age. We don't read what. And was buried in the tomb of Yoash, his father, in Ophrah of the Bezrites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. And notice they have this new one, if you will. Well, if you will, Baal just means master. So Baal Bevi, which means master of the covenant, oddly enough, their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had remembered them, I'm sorry, who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Baal, and God makes clear that's Gideon, in accordance with all of the good that he had done for Israel. And that, of course, is the last time we'll see the name Gideon, and from this point on now, it's going to be Baal. Now remember that son, my dad's the king? That's the whole point of the next chapter. Verse 1. Then Abimelech, the son of Yerubbaal, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers. And I remind you, his mom is from Shechem. And spoke with them and all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, 
What is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Yerubal reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am of your flesh and bone. Now, we're going to see that this is a foretaste, by the way, of another son of a king, uh, although Gideon really isn't supposed to be king. He's chosen to rule, and thus the 70 sons would be kind of next in line for it. But the... Um, and that, of course, is David and his son Absalom, who will do something very, very similar to this. We're going to see. Now, for what it's worth, Shechem has got a, a rich history, but we know it kind of most from one of the most horrible situations in Scripture, and that's in Genesis 34, where one of Jacob's children, a daughter named Dinah, is raped. From there, the men of Levi uh, come into the town. Uh, they are really, really upset about it. And, of course, they tell the guys, well, you can have our sisters, our, our family, if... You get circumcised, and while the guys are healing from their circumcision, the boys go in there and just kill everyone. They kill all the guys. That's their rampage on it. It'll be the place, by the way, that Joseph will be sent to check up on his brothers. That didn't turn out so well. It is a city of refuge, according to Joshua 20, verse 7. It is the place where Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel and called for the elders in chapter 24 when he makes the covenant. It's where Joseph's bones were buried, by the way. And again, it's Gideon's concubine is from there, and that's kind of the point of this. It'll ultimately be the place where when the kingdom divides in Jeroboam, Jeroboam is the first, if you will, king that isn't from Judah, uh, that will take over after Solomon. He will actually make Shechem his capital. It is also the place, though, it's kind of important to note that in that Jacob, by the way, took all of the foreign gods and he buried them under a tree, a terebinth tree there. So there's some tree in Shechem that has a bunch of idols buried underneath it. Why is that important? Because we're going to see in a moment. Well, take a look. So this guy, so what is he doing? He's basically kind of raising up his own army. He's like, look it. Gideon's got 70, if you will, legitimate sons, and then you've got me. But I'm from Shechem. I'm a homeboy. You guys, I'm from the hood. Why in the world would you want all of them to rule over you when you could have one guy do it? Don't you think you'd get favors from me if I'm from your neighborhood? So it says his mother's brothers spoke all of these words concerning him in the hearing of the men of Shechem. So he's talking to his uncles and such, his family members. there. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for he said, he's our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Barit. Now, notice, by the way, and I want to kind of compare. Remember when Gideon got the earrings? The weight of that, again, I remind you, was 1,700 shekels. Here, they give him 70 shekels. Uh, in Gideon's case, it was 1,700 shekels of gold. In this case, it's 70 shekels of silver, which, of course, is worth a lot less. It's currently roughly about 32 pence per gram. And again, I remind you, it was where the other was 25 pounds per gram. So really, in, in, I mean, in, in Gideon's case, I remember you, that he got about 480 grand for uh, the gold. In this case, basically, what he's going to get out of this is uh, roughly about 256 pounds. That's the way I feel about it. So, okay. I'm just going to turn at least the scream off. So, so the guy goes, so what do you do with 256 pounds? What he does is he buys a bunch of troublemakers. And, and by the way, it, it, people, I remember reading this to my daughter and, and Ruthie, and she was just asking, why would he do this? And I'm like, have you ever seen a rap video? It's like there's certain things we just think qualify us. And one thing is you kind of have, you have to have your entourage. And in a rap video, it's probably going to be a bunch of gals in bikinis. But in a case like this, you need a bunch of guys to run beside you because he's, a, he's got some house cleaning to do. 
And so what he does is he goes, and there will always be troublemakers for hire somewhere. There will always be somebody waiting in the wings for this. And it says here, with the money that he had gotten, I remind you, from the temple of this false god, he hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Now, where did they follow him to? He followed him to Gideon's place. So he went to his father's house in Ophir. Remember, that's Gideon's house. And killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Yerubbaal, on one stone. But Yotham, the youngest son of Yerubbaal, was left because he hid himself. Now, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Joshua had spoken at a stone, and that was where the people made a covenant. It's the one stone I know of in the area. And now all of a sudden, it's Gideon, or if you will, it's, it's Abimelech's turn. And what does he do? He's got a bunch of guys, and if you will, it seems like each one grabs a son, takes him over to this rock, and he kills him. So that there's no competition. And that'll always be the enemy's way of doing things. Is that there's no honest competition. He seeks to eliminate it. And I know, now with that, as the guys are being killed, the youngest of them escapes. Now how old do you think the youngest is? Now is the youngest five? Is the youngest eleven? We don't know. As a matter of fact, he'll be kind of an enigma in regards to that. But let's just say, let's just pick an age. Let's just say he's, give me an age. Fifteen. Let's just say he's fifteen for the sake of it. And what he's going to give us, in essence, is a little storybook parable. No, notice that. Now, what it says is, he went to his father's house. They killed him all, but this particular kid, he, let's say he's 15, hit himself. Verse 6 says, And all the men of Shechem gathered together at all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king. Now, this is not a king God recognizes, but it is a king that Shechem recognizes. Beside the terebinth tree... At the pillar that was in Shechem. Isn't that interesting? Remember how Gideon had had a pillar where everyone was worshiping before. Now his, if you will, his half-son or his son, now has beside a pillar, which is going to be a common thing. It's a place that's supposed to be sort of solid and unmoving. Uh, they're now making this guy king. They're declaring him king. But Yotham's got a problem with it, of course, the youngest son. So it says, and when they told Yotham, he went and stood up on the town of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and cried out. And he said to them, and he's about to tell a parable, but first, let's get our scene. Shechem is in a valley between two mountains. And the two mountains are Mount Gerizim and Mount Ibel. Now that might sound familiar as we've kind of walked through scripture. Because remember, all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, when you cross into the promised land, you're going to have these two mountains. One's going to be the mountain of blessing and one's going to be the mountain of cursing. If you remember that, and the idea of it is obeying my commands. If you're willing to obey me, then these are going to be the blessings. Declare that from Mount Gerizim. And the other idea of it, God says, if you're willing to follow me, if you're willing to heed my voice and you're willing to listen to me and you're willing to follow me and and, and obey my commandments, well, then you'll be blessed in the field. You'll be blessed in the valley. You'll be blessed when you come. You'll be blessed when you go. You'll be blessed when you rise. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed in all circumstances. Now, then you have people stand on Mount Ebol and you say, but if you don't do that, you'll be cursed in all of those circumstances. Your kneading bowl will be cursed. You know, everything that you do will be cursed. And in between the two is a valley. And that valley we would call the valley of decision. And right there in that valley is Shechem, where all this is taking place. So would it make sense that of the two mountains, wouldn't you go up to Mount Gerizim? That's the one where all the blessings were? Now, there are some churches, by the way, and they love to quote the verses, you'll be blessed and you'll be blessed and you'll be blessed. But it was a cause and effect. In other words, if you're willing to do this, this is what I'm willing to do. If you're willing to obey, I'm willing to bless. But it's somehow there's kind of the, you know, it's kind of like trying to collect a paycheck but not going to work. You know, it's like I really want God's blessings. But God says these blessings are completely reliant and they are product of your obedience. 
Ah, and sometimes we just love to quote the last half of the verse because it sounds so nice. And we don't see the part where God's like, look, you need to cling to me to bear fruit. And you need to follow me. You know, we resist the devil and he will flee, but that's not the whole verse. It says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. You know why he'll flee? Not because you all, because you all that. He'll flee because you're submitting to God and God's the one going to fight your battle. And if the devil had any brain cells functioning, he would be smart to flee. Well, with that in mind here, Again, I remind you, let's just say, as we kind of guessed, let's just say he was 15 years old. And here he is now when he comes up and he says this. Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Which, by the way, tells us that his purpose wasn't just a rebuke. He really wanted this to be a situation where they would be right with God. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil by which you honor God and men that I go and sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go and sway over trees? Then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men to sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, do you know what a bramble is? Bramble's a thorn bush. It's that little vine that's the kind of thing that you accidentally step on or grab when you're weeding. And you're like, oh, are you kidding me? This is that kind of thing that just it clings to the ground. Well, he says, they said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, well, then come and take shelter in my shade, which was, is odd because there really isn't any shade in that. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the, devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Eubal and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you. He risked his life and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem because he's your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Eurubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out of the, Beth, uh, of the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Yotham ran away and fled. And he went to Beer, which, by the way, just means well. It isn't like he went and got, you know, like some people would run to Beer after a rough day. And he dwelt there. For fear of Abimelech, his brother. Now, it's kind of the last you're going to see of him. Now, his name will be mentioned later, but we really... That, so, so get it. This is one moment this kid shows up, if you will, in the top of a hill. And he says, listen, you guys, I've got a story for you. The, king, the trees really wanted something to sway over them. So they started with an olive tree, which, by the way, first of all, is not taller than the average tree. But there is something pretty great about an olive tree, and that is they can live over a thousand years. There are some olive trees right now on the Mount of Olives that are over a 1,000 years old, and they still produce olive. And so from there, obviously, it gets decreasing. It grows from the olive tree to the fig tree. Now, the olive tree, by the way, we know even from um, a lot of the, what we see in the Torah, it, it, it's, a, it's one that you, the olive oil is used for anointing kings. It is used for the lights on the uh, menorah in the temple or the tabernacle. I mean, it definitely serves some really great holy purposes. Uh, by the way, all of these things, one way or another, are going to refer to Israel. We see the next thing, of course, is they go to the fig tree. And the fig tree, some of you are probably uh, you're familiar with the fact that with the fig tree, uh, Jesus actually had a deal with that in Matthew 21, 
where he went and he sought one. And he even speaks about it, where they went and sought fruit from the fig tree. But even after three years, it wouldn't bear any fruit. And of course, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem seeking fruit from there. And of course, they went up instead seeking to kill him. But then from there, they go to the vine. Which, by the way, God even speaks about that being part of Jerusalem as well in Isaiah 5. And, and, uh, and he speaks in regards to it being his vineyard. Now, needless to say, everything is kind of going lower and lower and lower to where it's finally, if you will, the bottom dweller. The thing, if you will, that is the product of the fall of man, if you think about it, because what a bramble is is a thorn bush, or if you will, a thorn vine. He says, look it, if you guys really did this in a good conscience, I mean, granted, in the end of it all, there are people that killed my brothers, but if you guys really did this innocently, where really what you wanted was a guy went and he just wanted to be king and you wanted him king and that's all you knew. If you were ignorant, well then good on you. But if you were aware of the situation and you were a party to it, man, may, basically, may it be, may you turn and fire on him and may he turn and fire on you. And by the way, there is a warning in this. There are people out there and they're always kind of seeking a battle now, not a battle like the Lord's battle, but a battle with brothers and a battle with sisters. And the problem is, is that once you arm your house, sooner or later you're going to get shot and you watch it happen over and over and over. I have friends that are pastors that just get on these really crazy tirades about trying to find something false in everybody. And the moment they start doing that, they equip their church to start looking for faults in everything. And once that happens, sooner or later, you know what's going to happen. The church will find fault in their pastor. And ultimately what he's saying is, he's saying, look, at if what you've done in this is really out of selfish ambition, and you've done this really in sin, may it turn on you, and may you guys wind up basically being each other's enemies instead of him being your king. So with that, of course, then, he's freaked out because his brother has been declared king, so he runs away. And I think that that's probably smart on his behalf. Now, verse 22 then. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel only three years, same amount of time may remind you that Jesus had as his public ministry. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now, a spirit of ill will means that God actually made it so that they actually hated each other. Do you know God can do that? Is that an interesting thing? It also says, though, by the way, when a man's ways please the Lord, that God makes even his enemies to dwell at peace with him. I mean, there are times where people start getting weird. I mean, I'm thinking, what way of mine is not pleasing you, Lord? Because <laughs> I want to see it changed. But there are times, the idea of it is that whether we knew it or not, Yotham was actually speaking prophecy. And now there is a response. And now, in the simplest sense, what we're going to see in the whole thing of this is you reap what you sow. What Gideon had reaped ultimately by make, calling his, by the many wives and by the concubine and by naming his son, my dad's the king, by replacing God with a golden apron. What we'll see ultimately is, is that he had reaped this desire to rule over people that, is the, that his son here, Abimelech, actually then takes and runs with. And when he sows then this vengeance, well then ultimately the people themselves now are going to go. And that's what he's, going to, that's what he's sowed. And well, he's going to reap it now. He's going to reap it upon himself. It says then again in verse 23, that God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And all the men of Shechem then, or, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech and the, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubal might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in the killing of his brothers. 
And the men of Shechem sent men to ambush against him on the tops of the mountains. And they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. So they're basically setting up an ambush to kill the king. But they're not just going to wait and do nothing. So every time someone comes by, they're robbing them. What a neat group of guys. And then we read that there's a guy named Gaal in verse 26. Now Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. By the way, we're only going to read about him in this chapter. And his name means loathing. Who names your son loathing? Well, and what we read then is, is that, remember, this is kind of basically what this guy is doing is basically the same thing that Abimelech did, which was he basically paraded, he campaigned a little bit, he hired a bunch of jerks around him, if you will. And as a result of that, the people were willing to just sort of step behind him. Well, the problem is, if that's the case, well, then how soon is it before the next guy does the same thing? Well, apparently, according to this, three years. And so then this guy basically does the same thing. Gaal or if you will, loathing, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyard and trod them and made merry. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Yerubbaal? And is is not Zebul his officer? Now, now, interesting, because Zebul, by the way, seems to be with him. So you could see him saying, well, isn't Zabul his commander, but isn't he with me now? That's kind of the idea here. Although we're going to find out that that's going to turn on him too. Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? By the way, the name Hamor means politely donkey. which is, And by the way, that's what they're going with this. But why should we serve him? If only the people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So he's challenging him. Now, understand here, they've been drinking. And there's something that happens often with alcohol, and people become beer heroes, you know, where what happens is after a couple drinks, they really think they're an awful lot bigger than they were. And strangely enough, a guy who's never been in a fight can have a couple drinks, and then the next thing you know, he thinks he's Jackie Chan. And, And unfortunately, I was raised in that environment. And that's a really sad place to watch a person. And, and, and I've never seen that kind of thing. I've learned this, that alcohol doesn't create new desires. It just releases the filters that you have, the common sense that says, that's a stupid idea. Don't do that. And, and, and when you start looking at these things, why do we want to toy with these things when they create this? Here, this guy now thinks he's really just Mr. Invincible. And so he basically challenges Abimelech to a, to a battle. Now, when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Take note, Gaal of the son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are, fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and all the people who are with you, and lie and wait in the field. And it shall be, as soon as the sun is up in the morning, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and all the people who are with him come out against you, he may, you may do to them as you find opportunity. Now, you get the idea that everyone's kind of getting wasted here, but apparently other than Zebul. And so he's kind of going, you know, the best time to attack them? Early in the morning when these guys are really hungover. They are not going to be in a position to fight you. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night, lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. And when Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate, he's getting a little morning air. Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. 
And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, who apparently seems to be next to him, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said, oh, no, you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. Now, what's happening is, remember, Zebul knows that this attack's about to happen. And here is Gaal, and he's kind of looking, and he's like, kind of looks like this thing is just shadows, and looks like people are coming down. And as it be the case, what is it? He says, oh, it's really, you know what it is? It's the reflection now of the sun over these people. It really isn't what it looks like. So, why don't you just kind of, no, just, just, it's not what you think. Verse 37, it says, then Gaal again spoke and said, see, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another, another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Remember that terebinth tree? The terebinth tree was the one, is that the one where, Jacob had buried all of those false gods. And now people had used that as a place to sort of seek and medium. So he's looking and he's going, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that that's just shadows, but I see another group here and it looks just like people too. And at this point, Zebul calls the bluff and he says to him, where indeed is your mouth now? And by which you said, who was Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not the people whom you despised? Are not these the people you despise? Go out, if you will, and fight against them now. So Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt in Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his brothers, so that they would not dwell in Shechem. So now you have a mole planted in there, and he's just driving them out too. It came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech, so he took his people, divided them into three companies. I think he got that from his dad. And lay wait in the field. He looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he arose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and his company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. Now, now up to this point, the Abimelech is obviously conquering it. He's really taking it down. But the prophecy was bothfold. It was, well, if you guys are going to be like that, then why don't you guys then go against him? And they're going down. Well, sooner or later, you kind of know Abimelech's going to have to fall. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. Now, when you throw salt on a field, it ruins all of the, uh, you're probably aware, it ruins all the crops. Now, when all the men of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berit. And remember, that's, the God that they'd been worshiping now. And it was told to Abimelech that all the people of the Tower of Shechem had gathered together. Now Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon. And it says then, and by the way, we only really, it means shady for what it's worth. And he had all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and he cut down a bough from the trees and he took it and he laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people who were with him, what I have done, what you have seen me do, make haste, and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and, and followed Abimelech, put them on his strong, against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. So the people had run into this tower to basically for safety. The problem is the two stones that are actually still common in Israel are basalt, which is a, if you will, it's a volcanic stone, and limestone. Limestone is the most common of them, and it's white. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem has to be built. There is a, a requirement, a code, a building code in Jerusalem for all of the buildings that are actually on the Jewish side, that they actually have to be covered in the facade of this white stone. 
Now, the thing about limestone is it's very porous and it's very wet. So it's a very simple stone to take down. And when a tower is made out of it and it's unreinforced, you just set it on fire. And what happens is the fire evaporates the water from the stone. And as the fire evaporates the water from the stone, the whole tower just comes crumbling down. And at that point, you've got a thousand people who have just died as a result of it. Abimelech then, verse 50, then went to Thebes. Thebes, by the way, means whiteness. And he encamped against Thebes and he took it. But there was a strong tower in that city as well. And all the men and women of the, all the people of that city fled and shut themselves in. Now, they're not shutting themselves in now to a temple. They're shutting themselves simply into a tower. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it. And he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So he was going to try the same thing he did last time. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now, notice... Just like a lot of these people, she's not even named. Just like the 70 sons. It isn't like Wanda the Wonderful or Martha the Magnificent or Buff Betty. She takes a, a millstone, and that's a heavy chunk of, of stone. She takes it. She takes it, and she pushes it out the window, and then drops it on his head and cracks his skull. And he's still not dead. So as a result of it, it says, verse 54, Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say to me, a woman killed him. Now, the man obviously has such pride, he really doesn't want the world to think that he was taken down by a woman. You can imagine where that would go today. I'll try not to build on that for the sake of it. So the young man thrust him through and he died. He was killed by his own armor bearer. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed, departed every man to his place. And what do you have in the end? Just like he said, you reap what you sow. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Yotham, the son of Yerubal. The way that this chapter ends, and it will be the last mention, of course, of this guy, Yotham, other than there will be another guy who will be the son of Uziah, who will be a king. We'll see him in Second Kings 15. The lesson you learn here is simple. You reap what you sow. And this is what God says in Galatians chapter 6. Don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And then the next thing sounds interesting because he, he doesn't just anyway. He says, oh, let us not grow weary while doing good. Because in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart. Now, this is a good and this is a bad thing. It all depends on what you're sowing. If what you're sowing is something good, God says there is a time and it is a time soon. It is a season and it is a due season. A due season means that there is a time God has already earmarked for this. It doesn't say you can pick your season. It doesn't say you can demand when that season is because let's face it, which of us wouldn't demand now? But, there are a few things we need to recognize according to Scripture about sowing and reaping. And one is, first and foremost, you are going to reap what you sow. Second, though, is you're going to reap greater than you've sown. You know, they've said about it's sort of sowing to the wind but reaping the whirlwind, but even here it says if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. I mean, when you sow a, a, some form of seed, it doesn't grow a seed. The seed was already there. 
what it grows is a tree that produces a lot of other seeds. You are going to get more than you, than, you, than you sowed in the first place. That's why it's a harvest. And again, that's good or it's bad. It all depends on what we're sowing. Third, is that when it does bear fruit, that there are seasons for it. Not always, it's not constant fruit. But that doesn't mean that the tree isn't doing something. But I do recognize this. If it's going to bear fruit, it's got to die. That seed, as we know it, has to die to make way for the thing that's going to produce greater. Finally, another thing, though, it's kind of key on this, is a tree never produces fruit for itself. It isn't like the tree is going to eat its own fruit. Unless it's Groot, it probably will not eat something that grows on them. Uh, on the other side of it, what you recognize is, is that a tree produces fruit so that other trees could grow from it. And in the same way, God does want us to be fruitful. Jesus told us that if we are going to be fruitful, we're going to need to cling to him. That's John 15. But he says, in that, one of two things is going to happen. You're, all, you're going to, in other words, whether you know it or not, you will bear fruit. Every person is going to bear fruit. The question is, what fruit are we going to bear? So then I guess the question we might want to ask is, well, what are we selling? If we're sowing to the Spirit, we're sowing to the Word, we're sowing the Gospel, if we're sowing investment in Christians, we're sowing what God would have us, we will see harvest. That's the beauty of it. But, if, as he says, as we see here, we have seen sowing to the flesh. And what it reaped was corruption and destruction. It says where there is selfish ambition... Envy and strife and every evil thing will accompany it. Listen, when there is selfish ambition, envy and strife and every evil thing will come with it. That's what happens when we start selling to that. By the time we're done with this, the problem was is that Abimelech was the fruit of Gideon's sowing. The story at the end, the destruction of Shechem, was the fruit of Abimelech's sowing. And by the time we are done, there is a city laid waste. There are cities laid waste. There are a thousand people that died in a tower because of a man's crazy vengeance and selfish ambition. And I don't want to see that. I wouldn't want to see that with us. None of us, knowing us in this room, there's none of us that want to see that kind of fruit happen. So what I want to do is just take a couple minutes and just get quiet before the Lord and ask the Lord to... Make us more furtive, more clear on what it is we're sowing. I mean, time is something we sow. If you will, time, if you will, tends to be the hand that spreads the seed. Well, well, what are we sowing on that time? What are we investing? Because the Lord does have a harvest for us. And it will be greater than we've sown. Whether that be 30, 60, or 100-fold, God makes clear there is a harvest to be had in its season. But he says, don't grow weary. Don't be afraid. Keep on it. Keep on it and keep your hands to the plow because I've got something great and I just need you to trust me. So let's get quiet before the Lord. What do you say? And let's just seek him in prayer now. Lord, I want to thank you. 
I want to thank you for that which is planted and that ultimately bears forth fruit. And I want to thank you, Lord, you promised that he was planted in your house will flourish in your courts. I want to thank you, Lord, that it isn't just a promise of the bad things we've sown. And we do pray, Lord, that you weed our gardens from anything that we have sown foolishly. But I thank you, Lord, that the fruit of your Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I thank you, Lord, that you have a promise that we will reap And I pray, Lord, we would be more concerted in our effort of of sowing. That we would be conscious of the things we are sowing into others, upon others. What we are sowing into the time that you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that we would have the kind of faith to know, Lord, that even as a farmer looks at seed that lands in the soil and at the beginning all he sees is a field of soil. He can trust that you are a God who brings forth fruition to those seeds. Let us be people who are quick to sow the seed. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us for paying our price. And as you were planted in the tomb, you would bear fruit as the first fruits of those, Lord, who would follow. And we are that harvest. But Lord, you told us that unless a seed fall to the earth and dies, it remains alone. Tonight in this room, Lord, we confess that we could be busy holding on to a life, Lord, that you have so much better. And I pray tonight, Lord, that we would let the old man die. There would be no golden aprons to be worshipped. That we would not recede to a past of what we might call glory days in any way. But Lord, even tonight, make us people, Lord, who walk forward with you, sowing as we go, and sowing in hope. You are so good, God, and we trust you. We commit ourselves to you tonight, confessing Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Jesus, lead us. Because you promised that the harvest would be plentiful if we'd be willing to sow. So Lord, send us as laborers to your field and bring forth that harvest, we pray, in its season. Jesus, in your name. Amen.